This is an ABC podcast. Hello, how are you going? Joe Lauder here with you for the Hack Podcast. Filling in for Dave Marchese for a couple of days. I've been off Hack for a few months now working on another project, but it's been so nice hanging out here again. One year ago, the town of Lismore and the surrounding regions of the Northern Rivers and parts of Queensland were hit by catastrophic floods. Lismore is a town that is no stranger to flooding, but this was something else. And thousands of residents were stranded and hundreds of them were only saved because of friends and neighbours and strangers, because emergency services were totally overwhelmed. One year on, the crisis isn't over. So today we're going back to Lismore to find out how the community is doing. Plus, later in the show, the government today unexpectedly announced a shake-up of the tax system, and a lot of people are saying it's a good thing for young people. So stick around to find out more, because we have a bit of a chat about that too. Hack! Lismore will come back, and it will build back better. So we need to take the community on that journey with us. On Triple J. This time last year, I remember being glued to my phone like so many Australians, watching one of the worst natural disasters in Australia's history unfolding in Queensland and northern New South Wales. The 2022 floods devastated towns in the Northern Rivers region in particular and left thousands of people displaced or homeless. And one year on, the recovery is far from over. Hack reporter Ellie Grounds has been bringing you updates from there throughout the whole past 12 months. And she's been back to hear how people are feeling about the one year anniversary and why they don't want Australians to forget what they went through actually not sure how to feel. Um, I know that there's an anniversary coming up. We know that it's been 12 months since the floods. Devastated is the only word um, to really use to describe what happened to the North Coast. It's really just mind-blowing that, you know, this time last year that I pretty much had to get saved, you know. My life was... I didn't even know what was going to happen. I thought I was going to die. A year ago, Talisha was living with her dad and partner at her dad's house in South Lismore. It had been raining for days and they knew a flood was coming, so they moved their stuff upstairs and went to bed. But at 3am, they woke up to water gushing through their house. Every few minutes, another step up to the veranda would disappear and they waited nearly nine hours to get rescued. Till today, I still suffer from massive anxiety issues, like it put my body through a lot and still, you know, 12 months on, I'm still suffering with that pain and that just everything that it gave me. And yeah, even looking onto one year, like you'd think it would all go away, but it definitely doesn't. I think it will be in my life until the day I die, the fear. Lismore may have caught the attention of national and international media, but the disaster covered a huge area. Much of southeast Queensland, including Brisbane, and towns across northern New South Wales like Mwilumba, Korokai and Woodburn went under that week. 22 people died, but some say there are more. Talisha now lives in a house she bought on the other side of town. She's safe up on a hill, but it's still not that much comfort. You know, a couple of days ago when it was raining, you know, I definitely struggled with being at work. I just wanted to get home and then I realised, oh wait, I'm not in a flood zone anymore, but that's just always going to be behind me. That's going to be my reaction to as soon as it starts to rain or rain heavy. I'm driving down one of the main streets in South Lismore. This was the first place that I came 
after the flood hit to meet up with people. And you can still see the impact of the floods on so many houses as I'm driving past. A lot of them are just shells of houses and people are either living inside in tents with no power, they're living in caravans in their driveway. Susie is one of the people who still isn't back in her home. Her place at Empire Vale near Ballina had 1.2 metres of flood water flow through it. It was like the Maldives, but <laughs> we were surrounded by brown chocolate water. And the Renaults still aren't finished. So for months, she and her husband have been living in their neighbour's shed. So we're living in a shouse. We're living in a loft shed, um, which was decked out. Susie's husband was one of the people who responded to the desperate plea for boats to rescue people in Lismore. He phoned quite distressed to say that it, it felt like a third world, um, third world country. And he, he was really worried for our safety. He was worried for his own safety. He had just rescued a six day old baby off the roof. And he said that the desperation of that mother, he was horrified by that she was willing to hand over her baby and be left on that roof because she'd felt she had nothing more to give. She says when things get dark, remembering what happened, she likes to focus on the good that came out of it. You don't expect to be relying on somebody's goodwill for more than a few weeks. So a flood event like this will always humble you to the basic of what it means to be a human being in amidst of a devastating time like this, the human kindness and the sense of resilience is really only born out of generosity from others. And it's been incredible to be a part of that. I've texted and interviewed Susie a lot over the last 12 months, but this is the first time I've met her in person. And I wanna know why she's always been so happy to chat to me when she's been through such devastation. When we talk about the elephant in the room, so to speak, the layers of uh, hurt, the layers of fear, the layers of, I guess, uncertainty that, that can shroud you after an event like this, they slowly peel off. I think there's always unexpected emotions that come up because as I speak these words, I'm thinking of those people who are trapped in their trauma and they haven't found the words. I'm turning up to be interviewed so that we can find a voice for those who can't. Hack on Triple J. That was Ellie Grounds reporting with that powerful story. And that's brought up any issues for you. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and Lifeline is available 24-7. Now, someone else who was in Lismore during the floods one year ago and has been working relentlessly to tell the stories of the community since then is ABC reporter Leah White. Leah was actually reporting on ABC News Breakfast that morning a year ago and at the same time she found out that her mum was trapped in her home as the floodwaters were rising and so Leah was in that situation of trying to get her mum help at the same time. Leah, thank you so much for joining me on Hack. My pleasure. Going into that day a year ago, 
What kind of flood were people expecting in Lismore and how were they preparing? Yeah, that's right. So it's actually the most flood-prone postcode in the country. So definitely no strangers to floods. So on that Sunday, I think everyone was kind of prepared for the possibility of a major flood. And particularly by that afternoon, they were kind of forecasting a repeat of 2017, which had been around the you know 11.6 metre mark. And so a lot of the businesses and the CBD had lifted all their stock well above that mark, kind of going, okay, let's prepare for an absolute worst case scenario. Let's prepare for, you know, the worst flood on record. So everyone was overprepared for the most part for the flood that was predicted. Areas like North and South Lismore that are particularly flood prone, a lot of the residents there were kind of, you know, moving their belongings above that major flood level. Um, So everyone kind of went to bed on the Sunday prepared for what was being forecast. But of course, what happened was uh, a lot worse. And you were having to report on this as well, including doing TV crosses in the morning, right? Yeah, so my role that day had been to do the morning crosses, so into News, news Brecky and then News Channel. So we uh, kind of came into the office, tried to get our heads around as much as we could and then went down to the Lismore SES unit. Maybe four minutes before six, the first warning came through that it might get to 14 metres which was just mind boggling. And while we're at the unit as well, we could see the flood water getting very close to the unit, which is quite high. Earlier that morning, I'd, I'd called my brother at about 4.30. He'd gone up the hill and, and he was safe. Mm. And my mum lives in North Lismore. And I'd been trying to call her, but it had been going to voicemail. And then two minutes after the cross, I found out uh, that my mum, she was uh, trapped in her house and she could see the flood water kind of, you know, starting to come through the floorboards and she was alone. Oh my God. And was she able to get onto any emergency services? What, what was happening for her? No, well, yeah, at that point, emergency service, the triple zero line, the SES line was pretty overwhelmed. I wasn't too worried at that point. So she called me and said she was trapped. And I'm like, right, I'm at the SES unit. I'll just walk in and I'll let them know that my mum needs to be rescued and, you know, it'll be fine. And so I walked in there and, you know, said my mum's in North Lismore. Um, She needs to be rescued. And they said, we can't help her. We've got hundreds of calls. We've got people clinging to power poles. Tell her to get on the roof or in the roof cavity. And yeah, it was at that point I um and I, I still struggle to admit this, but I got really emotional. Like I just, oh, you know, it was understandably. A, <laughs> yeah. a torrent at that point. Yeah, I think it was at that point that it hit me just how bad things were. That must have been absolutely terrifying for you. And it also, it, it shows a situation for so many residents at that point in time in Lismore, right? And like you said, with the SCS, they were like, at that point, overwhelmed. And so many residents just couldn't get onto emergency services to get rescued. How did your mum eventually get out? Fortunately for my mum, she had a neighbour in a leaky tinny kind of come by when the water was about knee high. And I remember being on the phone to her and just yelling at her, get in the tinny. Like, and, you know, fortunately she did. It was still another three days before the water receded enough everywhere that we could actually see each other because the roads were cut for quite a while. And the crazy thing is, like, 
my story pales in comparison to the stories I've heard in the 12 months since. There are people down the road from a retired couple who were in their roof cavity and had to bash their way through the side to get out before the flood drowned them in the roof cavity. There was a mother and a toddler who were um, tethered to a clothesline just for hours, just praying that that piece of rope didn't break. Just the most insane stories and hundreds, you know, thousands of these kinds of stories across the region. It's, it's really hard to get your head around. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Joe Lauder and I'm joined by Leah White, who's an ABC reporter in Lismore. And we're talking about those catastrophic floods that happened in the region of Lismore and northern New South Wales and southern Queensland one year ago. And Leah, looking back over this whole disaster um, in an article that you've written for the ABC, it really brought home for me as well just the scale of the rescue operation that you're talking about. So much of it fell to residents to save people like your mum from these situations. Yeah, emergency services were just simply overwhelmed. Like I think at the time, the Lismore SES unit um, only had about eight vessels and I think um, it was only four or five of those that were motorised, you know, 80 volunteers on the books and you've literally got hundreds or thousands of people who simultaneously need to be rescued. You would need an army to be able to carry out a rescue like that. What's changed in the last 12 months is there'd be very few people, I'd say, in this region that would be willing to to stay put if there was a major flood on the forecast. I think everyone would be wanting to get out early this time. What has the recovery been like there in the community in Lismore? How has the community changed in response to this disaster? It's such a complex question to answer because it's there's so many different things that are happening. I mean, we still have, you know, thousands of people that are displaced across the region. So not just Lismore, but Tweed and, and Ballina and further south as well. And there are different government measures. There's short-term, medium, long-term measures. But I guess, you know, ultimately it's very hard to know what things are going to look like, what the town's going to look like in the future. It's still a lot of people really, really doing it tough. So people kind of living in their gutted out homes, wondering if they'll be offered a buyback. People in caravans, in tents, a lot of people, you know, still couch surfing or it's nowhere near being resolved. You just mentioned buyback and also a house raise. Can you just tell me a bit more about what they are? Yeah, so in October last year, the state and federal governments announced kind of $800 million for a number of different projects. So $700 million of that was for the Resilient Home Package, which is a combination of buying back homes, which means the government will offer people in the the worst affected areas the value of their home pre-flood and retrofitting, which is kind of when we're seeing similar things in southeast Queensland, where you kind of build back with more flood resilient materials. So walls that can kind of just be washed off and fittings that can kind of just be hosed down after a flood and not having to rip off all those interior walls. What about the official emergency response if this type of event were to happen again? Is it likely that just because of the sheer scale and numbers that they would likely still be overwhelmed? 
Mm, I think so. So if we take the Lismore SES unit, for example, they've they've got extra volunteers now. They've got a few extra vessels now. They are better resourced than they were in February last year. But if we didn't see a change in community attitudes and we had the same number of people needing to be rescued, there's no agency that I can think of that would be able to carry out that many rescues simultaneously. It's simply too large, too dangerous a thing to do. Leah, thank you uh, so much for speaking to me and thank you so much for all your hard work over the past year covering this and um, and sticking with it and not giving up on that community. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, Joe. Hack on Triple J. That was ABC reporter in Lismore, Leah White, and you can read her story about the day on AB, the ABC News website. I'm Joe Lauder and you're listening to Hack on Triple J and we're looking back at the catastrophic flooding in the northern New South Wales, northern rivers area of New South Wales and also in Queensland that happened a year ago today. And as you've been hearing, the recovery from this disaster is still happening and so many people in the communities up there are still struggling. I've got Green Senator Janet Rice with me. She's a federal politician and she's involved in a Senate inquiry that's looking into poverty in Australia. Senator Rice, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, Joe. Lovely to be here. The Senate inquiry that you're part of that's looking into poverty in Australia recently went to Lismore. Why did you think it was important to visit the area as part of the inquiry? Yeah, look, we were in Lismore last week and it was our fifth hearing as part of the inquiry into the extent and nature of poverty in Australia, which um, we began uh, late last year. And what we wanted to focus on in Lismore last week was the impact of natural disasters on poverty because we know that we've got a big issue with poverty across the country with about one in six people living in poverty, one in three children. And then you know that when you have something like the massive floods in Lismore, that just then gets gets put on top of it and, you know, can make what was already a pretty dire situation for people an awful lot look lot worse. And so, and that was certainly borne out by the evidence that we heard last week. Yeah. What what kind of issues are you focusing on when you talk about poverty in Australia and how did you see those issues playing out on the ground in Lismore? Yeah, well, I mean, the issue with most people who are really doing it the hardest in Australia are people who are living on income support, whether that's job seeker, on disability support pension and age pension, youth allowance, student allowance, carers allowance, because their income is fixed. Then you've got people who are really struggling with the rising cost of living, you know, and skyrocketing rents. And so people who are on who are working but on low incomes are also, you know, really struggling to end, make ends meet. And we've got both of those situations going on in somewhere like Lismore, where you've already got a pretty, you know, um, not an insignificant number of people that are on income support who are basically really struggling to get by. We know the levels and the rate of job seeker at, you know, $48 a day is just massively underneath the poverty line. It's just totally inadequate to pay the bills, pay the rent, you know, pay for your medical expenses and particularly, yeah, the skyrocketing housing costs. Yeah. Then I... you add on natural disasters on top of that. And then, you know, the massive lack of housing, for example, mm. Lismore just means that rents are extraordinary. We were told that the, the cost of a room in a share house in Lismore is the same as it is in central Sydney. You know, so, wow. so if, you're, if you're trying to struggle on, you know, as a student or, a, or on job seeker and paying those sorts of rents, it's just impossible. You just can't do it. Yeah, that would have huge flow-on effects into the community as well. And we've got a, a text here from someone. It says, I'm driving home from work in tears. I was in Lismore for the flood and I've since had to relocate away. And that was from Emily, who was in Lismore and now in Tamworth. 
Emily, thank you so much for messaging in. I'm sure it's an incredibly hard day for you. That also goes to show that some people, I, I guess these compounding um, impacts and um, ongoing flow and effects from the natural disaster. Some people just choose to move away and that would also have effects on the community as well, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And that's what people said that still to, for all, many people Lismore feels like a ghost town because people have just moved away. And in fact, it's added to the housing crisis in nearby areas like Ballina where people have moved in. Mm. But we heard just, and, it, and then for people who are trying to stick it out, but you know, we heard awful stories like basically every car park in the area whether it's a supermarket car park or on the roadsides, every night you'll have five to ten, maybe even twenty cars parked with people living in their cars. And, you know, people bringing up kids living in cars and the local emergency you know, accommodation areas basically saying there is nowhere for people to live and all they can be doing is handing out tents and just encouraging people to, you know, see if you could find somewhere to pitch your tent. <laughs> and, wow. and it's just, you just cannot get your life together. I imagine trying to rebuild your life if that's the situation you're in, and then you're living as well as not having a roof over your head, the amount of, you know, the limited income you've got, you can't pay your medical expenses. You might be traumatised, but you can't afford to see a psychologist. You can't of afford course. to pay for good for good food, you know, and so people just basically saying they're surviving on potatoes and two-minute noodles. How on earth can you be expected to rebuild your life if that's the situation you're in? What so you clearly, you know, we need to be massively investing in social and affordable housing. We need to have a rent freeze as well. And we need to be raising the rate of income support to above the poverty line, which is currently $88 a day. So pretty much what it was when we had the COVID supplement during um, COVID when JobSeeker was was doubled. And people tell us that was great. That was, you know, it still wasn't a lot, but it was but it was enough to really sort of get your life back on track. And people said that during that time they were able to pay, you know, pay their bills. They were able to pay off some debts. They were able to get their car repaired so they could get to work. You know, mm. all of those sorts of things. So, and that's exacerbated in some way like this more where you've just got so much else going on in terms of people just struggling to, to have somewhere to live. Yeah. Senator Janet Rice, thank you so much for coming on Hack and telling us about what you found out last week in Lismore. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Joe. That's Green Senator Janet Rice. And on the text line, we've got someone who says, we're just finishing repairing our rental property in Lismore this week. Our tenants will not be charged the new market rate. It's crazy how much rentals cost here now. The Australians who are having to make tough decisions around the kitchen table expect their government to make tough decisions around the cabinet table. On Triple J. I'm Joe Lauder and you're listening to Hack. I'm hanging out with you for a couple of days and then Dave Marchese is going to be back later in the week. And now we're going to talk about superannuation and seriously, please don't switch off because I know this is a topic that when you hear it, you might be thinking it's boring and like it doesn't matter for you, but I swear it's important. It doesn't just affect our retirement because tax breaks for people with lots of money in their super. So pretty much not young people like you and me. It's one of the ways younger generations get screwed over by our tax system. And today the government dropped a bit of a bombshell. It said it's going to be changing some of those sweet tax breaks that rich people get on their superannuation. And someone who always wants to talk about why you should give a shit about your super is Shalila Madora, our political reporter in Canberra. And here she is to explain these changes to you. We've all got opinions on what the government spends our taxpayer dollars on. Mental health. There's not much done about mental health these days. Hospitals and schools. For sure the environment. Young people and the environment. Unfortunately, our cash is limited and that means the government chooses its priorities. 
And until now, older Australians have been reaping the benefit of generous tax breaks. Here's PM Anthony Albanese. 17 people earning over uh, $100 million, having over $100 million in their superannuation accounts. Uh, the individual who has over $400 million in his or her account. Most Australians would agree that that's not what superannuation was for. At the moment, anything you earn from your super fund, up to $1.7 bucks, isn't taxed at all. Earnings above that are taxed at 15%. Most people don't have nearly that much in their accounts, according to the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. The average superannuation balance is about $150,000. But the people who do receive those tax breaks end up costing the government big bucks. The cost uh, in revenue foregone from super tax breaks is about $50 billion a year. Uh, and that will surpass the cost of the age pension, as I've said before, by around 2050. In other words, the tax breaks that rich people get for putting money into their superannuation will cost the government more than what they spend on supporting less wealthy older people. So the government has announced a change. After the next election in 2025, the government is going to ramp up the tax on earnings for people with more than $3 million in their super accounts. It's going to go from 15% to 30%. 99.5% of people with superannuation are unaffected by this reform. Under 80,000 people will be impacted by this. Mr Albanese says that creates extra cash for the government to use on other services. The savings that are made uh, will contribute $900 million to the bottom line over the forward estimates. Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor said the Labor Party is breaking its election promise to not change superannuation. They've decided to move, move the goalposts. And frankly, that's not good enough and we're not going to be part of it. Hack on Triple J. Shalila Maduro reporting there. Now, to find out more about these changes, I've got Joey Maloney with me. He's with the Grattan Institute's economic policy team. Joey, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Joey, do I have you there? Sounds like we might have a bit of an issue with Joey. Just a moment. We're going we're gonna to be getting Joey up in just a moment. Um, meanwhile, on the text line, somebody says, won't someone please think of the ultra-rich 1%? That's... James in Bunjalung country, and someone says, I can run faster than my super grows. There you go. And some messages that are coming through on as well about Lismore. Somebody says, I work in the soup kitchen in Lismore, which was two stories underwater last year. Back up and running now, but the homeless people have been relocated to a pod village in Wollongbar, which is, and it's Oh, it's got some really big issues. And then somebody else says, this story is sobering. I'm putting my woes well into perspective. Thanks for sharing. All right. Now we've got Joey Maloney with me now from the Grattan Institute. Joey, can you hear me now? Yes, I've got you. Okay, there. great. Sorry about that. Joey, these tax concessions on super that have been um, announced by the government today, do they unfairly advantage rich people? Because that's how it sounds. Yeah, the way that superannuation is taxed inherently uh, advantages richer, wealthier people with higher balances and higher incomes. And it's a pretty simple equation. Outside of super, things are taxed progressively. The more you make, the higher rate of tax you pay. Inside super, things are taxed flatter. So it doesn't matter how much you make or how big your balance is, everyone's paying the same tax rate. So it's kind of a, an inbuilt feature of the system. And I think today's announcement goes a small way towards addressing these inequalities. 
Um, not all the way. Not It's not everything that needs to be done, but it's a good first step. So to start with, can you just step me through again how this is costing the government and taxpayers? So this person that we heard about today with $400 million in their super account, they're basically not paying a lot of tax by putting it into their super. Is that how taxpayers and the government's missing out? That's exactly right. So the way, and not wanting to get too technical, but the way economists think about it is that when you are deliberately making the decision to tax something lower than you otherwise would, it's conceptually the same as the government spending the money. You're just giving up revenue to serve some sort of policy purpose. So when the government decides to tax super at lower rates than uh, income or money outside of super, then it is giving up revenue. So it needs to ask itself, well, what's the purpose of giving up that revenue? What am I hoping to achieve? And it's probably not a good justification to say, okay, well, at the moment, what it's achieving is it's boosting the bequests of the children of very wealthy people. Yeah, right. So how would this affect young people? And especially if we're looking long at the long-term trajectory for the economy and what kind of economy we're going to have into the future? I don't think today's change should have any young people particularly worried. I think that... Are there positive benefits uh, or changes? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. There's positive benefits. One of the one of the really unfortunate things about the changes that have happened to superannuation tax, starting with the Howard and Costello years, is it basically favoured older people at the disadvantage of younger people. So if you think about how much tax the government raises as a whole and how much of that comes from different age groups, a bunch of decisions undertaken by John Howard and Peter Costello not least of which was to reduce taxes on superannuation, basically meant that younger people had to bear more of the tax burden. So this is this measure mostly targets wealthy older people and it helps just correct a bit of that intergenerational inequality that's been built into our system over the years. That was Joey Maloney from the Grattan Institute's economic policy team. That's all we had time for. Thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hack on Triple J.